who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Flinor. And I'm Sarah Century. And today we are super freaking excited. We have got super special guests on, the folks from one of our favorite podcasts, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. It is on all your favorite podcast platforms. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. They love us. They love our souls. They get it. They are all about... Buffy and they're looking at the Vampire Diaries. They did a 30 Rock episode. You got to listen to them. They're hysterical. And that's Alex and Em are our hosts. And so Alex and Em, you want to say a little bit about yourselves? Hey everyone. I'm Alex. We're super excited to be on Bitches on Comics. These two are very, very funny and very, very knowledgeable. I'm a screenwriter, singer, songwriter. I do a lot of things. Writer. (laughs) Um, I do a lot of things. Hi everyone, this is M. I'm the other half of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. I'm also a writer specifically for young adult and middle grade. I am a copy editor and a beta and sensitivity reader, and I really, really, really like TV. So here we are. <laughs> yes, so exciting. So today we are going to talk a little bit about, we're going to try and like mash our two pods together. So we're going to talk about the underutilized comic book characters in film, the female characters, because, oh, whoa, the men are everywhere. Oh, look, there's a man flying. Oh, look, there's a man punching the sky. Great. Perfect. Whatever. So we're going to talk about the female characters. And if we could think of any non-binary characters who've been in films, I can't. And we're going to talk about how they could have been utilized better. Who do you want to start with? I'm trying to decide if I want to start with my my least favorite or my most favorite. <laughs> That's fair. That's let's fair. Dump, let's dump right into like the deep end. My very, very favorite underutilized comic book character is also one of my favorite supervillains, Poison Ivy. Yeah. <laughs> Poison Ivy! <laughs> so I told you guys yesterday. And I've You're also in good t- company. 
I, see, I knew the taste was high. Um, <laughs> yeah, because y'all just talked about Poison Ivy. I, we talked about her. just had a great combo about it. Yeah. So I told you guys yesterday that I read the Batman comics, and I told Alex as well that I really hate Batman, like as a as a concept, as an ideal, as a character. <laughs> but I read the comics because his roster of villains is incomparable. Yeah, that's real because Batman is just Elon Musk. <laughs> and that's normal. Like a lot of, I think a lot of people, that's true for me as well. I read for the supporting cast and I read for the villains essentially. Right, right. Um, and Poison Ivy is, I think, one of the more interesting characters because a lot of times when people create villains, they create villains um, with an emphasis on the fact that these people are either um, socially inept or deeply unnatural or subhuman in some way. I think what fascinates me about Poison Ivy, besides the fact that I'm a nature lover being a Taurus and that I too have a green thumb, is that she is a villain with a very, very deep connection and love for all things growing, which I thought was super cool. And she's gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah, and that connection to life is very interesting because of how it's villainized, right? A lot of times now we're looking back on Poison Ivy and saying, was she like the villain in the story? Because <laughs> like, you know, she's going after billionaires and stuff. A episode of the animated series that I watched whenever I was really young has her going after Harvey Dent and people around him, but it's because they're going to destroy a marsh. So as we have so much catastrophic things happening, we have like, you know, all of the horror of mass extinction and climate change. You know, um, we could have lost a billionaire along the line and probably it would have been good, you know? (laughs) We certainly would have been no worse for wear. Yeah, and that's, you know, that seems like a callous thing to say. And I think it's like a hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And that's why it's so easy to villainize Ivy. But at the same time, there's so many people who are feminist, people who are connected more to the earth. Queer people definitely tend to really idolize Ivy. And I think it's because a lot of times we go into things with our whole hearts, you know, and we want to make things be better. And then we have this world that is very complicated. And a lot of times, a lot of the most terrible people are in power. So you have to learn to navigate that in a lot of ways. And whenever Ivy tries to navigate that, it's like Batman punches her in the face you know so it's like it doesn't really that makes sense like ivy isn't even a real villain she's a planeteer Mm -hmm. totally 100 percent. she really is exactly she does (laughs) there's things where you're like cool yeah i mean like in this wonder woman comic she kills a dude for no reason supposedly or whatever but you can kind of chart those things up to bad writing essentially or people not really understanding the character like a lot of villains go good all of the time but for some reason there's this like no not poison ivy though because she like represents women and queer people and the earth and like all of this unbridled nature and i think that that's really terrifying in white supremacy the idea that somehow someone could be part of the world and not need these structures of privilege and power to make them powerful or to make them fall in line i just think that's part of what's freaks people out about poison ivy I was actually thinking too, Sarah, about in the animated series, when they introduce her, one of the plot points is that she saves a rose that would be extinct off the planet Mm -hmm. if she had not saved it from the paving. And I think it's the same Harvey Dent moment. And it's 
it's just like so interesting. And actually in the new cartoon adaptation, which has lots of problems that I would be happy to go off on, Poison Ivy at least is like, why does everyone keep calling me an eco-terrorist? I'm not a terrorist. (laughs) I think that plants should not be killed for no reason. Or ever. And everyone's like, I don't know. You seem pretty. I don't know. Woman-y. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that people are trying in some of the adaptations, but I don't know, man. It's just so disappointing to see her straight washed in that and just like dating Kite Man. And it's like, what? No. I'm glad you mentioned the straight washing because... I know in the comics, Ivy is definitely portrayed as a bisexual. She's in a relationship with Batman. She's in a relationship with Catwoman. Wasn't there a brief interaction with her and Harley Quinn as well? It was more brief with Catwoman. And Harley Quinn and her were in a relationship. Like, Harley Quinn was really regularly trying to get Poison Ivy to move in with her and stuff like that. Right. See, so she was like, so Harley was like a U-Haul lesbian for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was so cute. Like that time was so cute. I actually that's like that's the relationship between them that I want to see because I think a lot of times Harley gets to be a very flippant character towards Ivy. Ivy's such a serious ecological person and she really lives for her work essentially. And so I think that Harley gets used sometimes by writers as this way to kind of make fun of that and I don't like that. <laughs> I like it so much better when Harley is just like over the moon for Ivy and like wants to help her. That's kind of the thing that I love the most about their dynamic. People can't handle that like two women who are so different could just love each other, could just be in love and be committed to one another's happiness. They want to make fun of it or they want to make it where like, oh, Harley's the wild card, which like, yes, we get it. That's like her whole persona. We get it. And people can be complex. Mm -hmm. Why is it so terrifying that these two female characters could be complex? Right. I mean, I know Ivy was completely excluded from the 1960s Batman TV series with Adam West. Like, she never appeared in that. So they didn't want to see her with men either. Like, they just really didn't want to see her. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I think it's interesting that Ivy, because you would think Ivy, particularly like in this new Marvel DC, particularly new DC era that we're in, you'd get more like live action adaptations of Ivy. Um, but you don't, <laughs> uh, and there there hasn't been, which is interesting to me. Not since the um, the movie that shall not be named uh, by <laughs> Joel Schumacher that everybody hates. Though <laughs> Ivy was pretty good in that. <laughs> But also, I would say um, there's a lot of aggression towards it as well. Like the yeah. uh, the Poison Ivy League is this whole online fandom that is like, you know, queer women, like a bunch of different kinds of people really who have come together and tried to build a fandom around Ivy. And they get a ton of shit. Like people are very aggressive towards them a lot of the times. And like, we'll say, that's just like you reaching. Like, why do you always have to do stuff like this? And like, you know, kind of MRAing them all of the time, but it's from people who wouldn't necessarily usually do that. So you see that Poison Ivy extra threatens people. And I think for all of the reasons that we've already listed, you know? Right. Well, at least shout out to Zendaya, who I don't know if you guys saw it, but like definitely did a Poison Ivy inspired look yeah, on one of her I'm red Googling carpets. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally taking it. that as her throwing her hat in the ring to play the live, adap- live action adaptation should it come about. God, she that'd be, be great. great. 
And I was going to say, too, in Gotham, Ivy is more of a straightforward villain in Gotham, but it does give her an arc and it gives her a lot of autonomy. So as much as like Gotham was like all over the place (laughs) and not always, you know, like, I mean, I liked it okay, but I never got to the Poison Ivy part because I couldn't stick with it. I was there for like Jada Pinkett Smith, like through the entire time of her, like every time she walks on. Yeah. Fish Mooney. Oh my God. Step on my neck. Thank you for it. But um, I think that Ivy in that was actually, to me, had more autonomy because she comes around and is just like, I'm doing this. Like, you're all like, I'm tired of you. (laughs) Like, I'm going to do an evil thing. Like, and to me, I just don't, I don't know. It's like, I, I feel like a lot lately they've tried to, it's like, oh, Ivy's like so weak and suffering all of the time. And I think that that's just like total male fantasy stuff where it's like, yeah, we're like hurting the earth or something. And it's just like, yeah, but the earth is like going to kill us. <laughs> like, And that's kind of like, I think when people kind of portray her as like weak or like unable to like summon her full power or whatever because of attacks by men or whatever I just always am like this is a weird analogy that is playing out in front of us I guess but it does seem that frequently and and tell me where I'm wrong that more so than other characters I see creators portray her without her signature abilities like in the cartoon she was just debilitated by a poison gas and everyone's like excuse me did you not catch that her name is poison ivy you literally can't poison her that's the whole fucking thing (laughs) right she's 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 immune to toxins and i i believe that she also like it wouldn't even get that far because she can control she can control your mind with her pheromones Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah they depower her a lot and she's definitely one of those characters that gets like you know, it's because in her first appearances, a lot of times that's chalked up to her having suffered from, like, an extreme mental illness that came about from, like, you know, the Floronic Man essentially experimenting on her. All of that, to me, kind of holds up. Oh, but it I doesn't forget that the Floronic Man is part of her story. Right, right. And he, like, what a weird character. really messed her up. Um, yeah. But, and that, to me, that all makes sense. You know, like, she was, like, reeling from trauma and things like that. We've all done... I mean, not probably all of us, but a lot of people have done really questionable things when reeling from trauma. So I can, you know, always forgive her for that stuff. But I think that, like, the fact that we're still, it's like 2020, (laughs) and, like, we still see an Ivy who's, like, out of control and can't keep her body together and, like, all of that stuff and is, like, suffering and, you know, everything. And it's just, like, so Harley gets to bounce back from this, but Ivy doesn't for some reason. And, like, we just, I don't know. I just think that people really like to see Ivy being put through a pain cycle all of the time. And I don't think it's normal (laughs) or good. Totally. And, you know, it it reminds me, you know, when we were talking about the 90th anniversary of Nancy Drew, they killed her off to have the Hardy Boys investigate. And it's something that I, I read someone who was part of the Poison Ivy League who said, imagine what it's like to have your favorite character. And anytime you open a comic, you don't know if the first thing you're going to see is their, their throat slit. Yeah. And that's just the reality with Poison Ivy. And I it was is, yeah. I was watching, I try and watch a lot of the animated stuff on DC Universe because I'm trying to justify having the membership. <laughs> and so I was like going through like, you know, Justice League Dark, blah, 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 blah. And I got to like the Gotham by Gaslight, which is like a reimagined. Oh, God, yeah. 
And the opening scene is Jack the Ripper killing Poison Ivy. Yeah. And I was like, why the fuck would I want to watch this? Also, Jack the Ripper was like an average-ass serial killer. Poison Ivy's Poison Ivy. Like, what are you doing? I think all of this stems from the need to try to, like, see a powerful woman and take her down a peg. And then when you, when you, when you throw in the fact that Ivy loves women and that Ivy is an environmentalist, other things that we have been taught to hate because of toxic masculinity... That yes. need to see her suffer is the masculine need to take the woman down a peg or show her that she's not as powerful as she thinks she is or she's not as powerful as she could be with a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And even if it's like the most useless man, like kite man. Literally the most <laughs> useless man. He bought a kite. <laughs> I can buy a kite. I would I, I would do anything for poison ivy. I'll buy you I all would the buy kites. a kite for poison ivy. <laughs> I will buy every kite in existence on this planet if I have to. I would buy Kite Man's kite for poison I would, ivy. I would buy Kite Man. I would set him free, <laughs> but I would buy him. That's hilarious. That's insane. I don't know why I said that. That's so crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, like like I said earlier, like Batman's roster of villains is A1. Like I chose uh. Poison Ivy is like, you know, for this underutilized characters because I want to keep it like all women. But when I think about other characters that were done dirty in movies like Mr. Freeze or Killer Croc or even ones that did get their shine but are very complex characters like the Joker, the Penguin, uh, the Scarecrow, the Riddler. I'm like someone who has a deep understanding of trauma and what mental illness makes you do conceptualize these people. Yeah, totally. I think that's why we both like the Arkham Asylum podcast. Is that, am I naming it right, Sarah? The Arkham Sessions. Yeah, the Arkham Sessions. I know I was getting it wrong. They go so much into those psychological profiles and really give a lot of credence to, like you were saying, the creative energy that went into it. But then also being like, some of these things might be unintentional. Like the way that Harley becomes this badass feminist, that was pretty unintentional from who they created. But it's cool to see how they get into the underpinnings of that. Uh, I will Dr. say like- it's Dr. Andrea Letamendi, who is a psychologist and has appeared in Batman comics. Like Gail Simone wrote her into a Batgirl comic. That's the greatest little piece of like lore I've ever heard. Thank you. Yeah, very much. it's a really good podcast. And then I only want to throw down for one possible iteration of the people you mentioned, which is that I really loved the Cillian Murphy as Scarecrow. But I think that might just be because I'm in love with Cillian Murphy. So I was about to say, Cillian just, Murphy is so compelling. Those I eyes. Mean, oh. He looks like a serial killer to me. Like I'm, But he's, as oh, an actor, he's extremely yeah. compelling. Very, yeah. very compelling. Totally. So let's, I guess, continuing like in our DC universe, I guess we can launch into my, my person, at least in DC. Um, and we talked a bit about this last night, but... I think one of the biggest underutilized assets in film and TV is is the Nubia character from yes. Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. who <laughs> is really, really freaking cool. So, like, her first appearance is in the 70s. It's an issue somewhere in the 70s, mm-hmm. and she is essentially the twin sister of Diana, but she's a black woman and she's matched Diana and she's like twin twin. I mean, she's even a better fighter than Diana. She bests Diana. Right. And that's like the, the reveal, right. Is she's like the mysterious warrior. And then she like pulls off her helmet and everybody's like, what? Nubia. Nubia. (laughs) And, and granted, and they, they re explain it in subsequent series as 
we find out that Hippolyta sort of like gave herself like a mind, you know, uh, did some stuff with her mind and to erase this memory that she had formed two children from clay and that both were brought to life by Aphrodite or Athena. I think it's Aphrodite. And, and they're, they're like one from the white clay and one from the black clay. From black clay. <laughs> and like so and Aphrodite had brought both to life, but Ares had come to like kidnap both of the girls, but only got away with one. And thus he is like raised her, but Nubia is like searching for her sister. And then there are all these other subsequent things that happen. Like she lives on the floating island, which its depiction is like really racist, but like the concept mm-hmm. of it is really cool. Yeah, the depiction in the 70s comics is super racist, but like, Real bad. <laughs> but like, the, the idea is really cool in that, like, it's instead of Themyscira, which is all women, like, she's on this island that is like all men. And there's even this cool thing that she does where, like, these two men are like fighting over, like, who's going to like marry her, or, like, wife her. And she cuts both of them off and she's like, no man will ever own me. Yeah. Like, and Hot. she's a whole badass, and I would love to see her integrated into the Wonder Woman film franchise. I think something that Emma and I talk about a lot, and something that I'm particularly interested in, is is these women, these really formidable, powerful women with like punishing father figures. There's an outtake where we we talk about like Matthew and Beyonce. I think a lot about Matthew and Beyonce. Um, <laughs> this sort of very punishing father figure but but still sort of created this I mean powerhouse I mean was instrumental in creating and in shepherding this sort of powerhouse of a woman and and there's something in that that story that how that how hard that is how it is to break away from like I think a, a parent that maybe caused you trauma or like debilitated you in some way but was also instrumental in creating the person that you are being super formidable and so you know that would be like Ares and Nubia like being raised by Ares and and granted in the comics they have Ares like mind control her which I think is like lame and a cop out I think it's cooler if there if she's just been raised by this you know war god on this island full of men I think um you know being forged in fire and having to thrive anyway which I think is a very black female story (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and I love this idea of Diana and Nubia being at odds and using using that relationship or like that severed sisterhood to to think about the ways in which white women and black women sort of interact with each other and, and how I think white feminism in some ways has let black women down a lot um yeah. and all of that stuff I think all of that all of those sort of big ideas are are very much contained in this Nubia character in that story there's so so much more room to talk about those things with Nubia like there's so much more room to talk about the problematic father figure all of this stuff never gets touched on with that character I do want to know that the same person created Poison Ivy and Nubia and that that guy sucked. <laughs> but <laughs> his name was uh, Robert Kniger, and he's the person who I was talking about yesterday when I was talking oh, yeah. about the woman who was supposed to take over editing on Wonder Woman, Dorothy Woolfolk. So whenever Dorothy Woolfolk was 
up for that job. She had been editing a surprisingly feminist run on like Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. And it was just kind of trashed because, you know, men. And then whenever she was supposed to move to the Wonder Woman series, she got bullied out of it by like all of the editors. But because Robert Kniger wanted the job and he wanted an anti-feminist Wonder Woman, essentially. So whenever she got pushed out of the comic, the first issue of his run as an editor showed a woman that looked exactly like her getting shot in the head by a sniper. So that's bonkers. And that's the guy who brought us two of our favorite characters <laughs> that are so underutilized. And also because you see those first moments of like Nubia and you see those first moments of Poison Ivy and those are both problematic, right? In different ways. You have Poison Ivy just being like, I'm going to kiss Batman until he's mine or whatever. And then you have Nubia following some of like the racial stereotypes that <laughs> were very prominent in comics in the 70s. But it's very interesting to me that it's like this one total dipshit like, that created <laughs> both of these characters that are so much better than their creator, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. Yes. <laughs> and, and these and, were the two times. These were the two times. <laughs> and that's totally 100% like the um, like an analogy almost for that complicated father figure, right? Like where you're just like, this guy sucks so bad, but he created these like women that, you know, once again, they're bad tropes. Like, he didn't do it on purpose to be awesome or something, but then we all, like, look at these characters and are just like, these characters deserve more than what their, like, creator slash father figure gave them. I mean, I would even venture so far as to say that he intentionally created these strong women who were likable and relatable to other women for the express purpose of punishing them within yeah. the comics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've the nail on the head I think the thing about Nubia too that um Alex said that I think is really interesting is that if she's not brainwashed not only does she have more autonomy but what also ends up inadvertently happening is that we're no longer questioning Nubia so much as her environment right if she has autonomy and she's obeying Aries or following his path by choice then we need to have a larger conversation about how being raised around men and toxic masculinity and having internalized misogyny poisons women and I don't think he wanted to have that conversation so it's better to just make her brainwashed right well I think we're also we're unwilling to have conversations about people who are ambiguous that make good and bad decisions who have reasons they make bad decisions who are complicated especially when it comes to non-binary people women trans folks queer folks we don't want nuanced pictures right we want they go in the good bucket or they go in the bad bucket and that's that and i think that someone like nubia really blend and, and not that i mean you know part of what you're saying and i totally am tracking is that her her complicated bits her ambivalent bits are part of the influence on her so how do we grapple with that what happens when someone is a result of how they've been treated i think about that with all kinds of characters i'm actually thinking about my own fiction so i don't and, know and i'm so glad you <laughs> said that, that. <laughs> no and i'm so glad you said that because that's how i i always think of nubia like i i just think uh i think you know, it's not that she's following Aries's path. It's just that, you know, you're raised how you're raised. Um, and in fact, I think later on, she, I think she does try to do good things. And she does because, and the chief difference about her, which is why I think she's so cool, is that 
when we meet, there's also like later, like later on, she's living on Earth and she's essentially like kind of low-key become like a Black Panther, which makes sense because she's she's living in the body of a Black woman. Uh, she like empathizes with that plight. She's being treated like that in the world. But she's, the, I think the biggest reason why I really like Nubia is she is, I guess, less innocent in a way that they mm. try to portray Diana. She Nubia just sort of understands how the world works mm-hmm. and she acts accordingly. And, and that's what I think is so interesting about her is like, and I guess that, that would be my vision for her. If somebody hired me to write Wonder Woman three, which girl, <laughs> do, it, are, do it, do it, do it. You already took, um, you already took my, my Buffy reboot. I do. You might as well. Um, <laughs> I think that's something that I would absolutely lean into is this sort of not hardened, but just very like, yeah, this is how this goes type of attitude. In fact, if Diana's sort of this, and that's, and I guess that's what's interesting to me about the character. You know, Wonder Woman, the first movie, obviously the first movie, the the, the new one isn't out till summer. But um, something that really got me as I was watching it is like, you know, she's, Diana's being on the mascara and, you know, she's living in this utopia and, and her, and Hippolyta is very adamant about, you know, protecting her and I think coddling her in a way that, White women are encouraged to be uh, coddled in a sense, mm-hmm. not coddled, but their innocence protected. Um, yeah, it's it's like the privilege of preciousness. Like white women get to be precious and and to have their their dignity preserved and to be treated like they're so special. And black women are never given that same right. Like I, I think about you know. I've seen, I've had many a conversation where, you know, white mothers are like, I can't talk to my seven-year-old white children about race. Like, how (laughs) do I do that? Meanwhile, you know, I was called the N-word when I was like six with the soccer ball to my face. Like, so I'm interested in that dynamic. And I think there's a really rich story in there for Nubia to be like that person, Um, that person it can be like sort of a feminist, and and it's not the same by any means. But I'm thinking a lot about the Killmonger Black Panther relationship, and how the two of them. It's really like this calling to account, right, for the way that Black people across the world live versus Black people in Wakanda. This is like this white person's opinion of what it is. So tell me where I'm wrong. But it seems that Nubia and Wonder Woman offer another way of talking about these divides, but doing it across feminism and asking really hard questions about what it means to be feminists when we can't just say one exceptional white lady to save us all you know like there's there has to be more nuance and how do we do this with super characters right and then it it goes back to something that I think that we were talking about last night like I'm very anti-war but I also understand the necessity of violence as a Mm -hmm. as a marginalized person I don't Mm -hmm. if someone's coming to your house and because they found out that you're you're gay, you're non-binary, and, you know, they put a brick through your run- window. Like, you have right. a you have a duty and, a, a, I think, a, a sense of self-protection to, like, put a brick back in their face, like, right. for the sake of survival. And I think the Nubia character could be, like, a character to explore mm. that idea, like, the necessity, like, for when you are a part of a marginalized com- mm. uh, community versus Wonder Woman, who is, you know— at least in the film, um, is, you know, very, very privileged and is just sort of enacting war for the government 
but like what is it yeah, to yeah. what is it to enact war in in trying to survive in this marginalized body like and protect people who look like you um from being erased and i would do it on the backdrop of the vietnam war i think um Going on a point that um, SC made, I absolutely do see the parallels between Nubia and Wonder Woman and Killmonger and T'Challa. And it goes back to Alex's earlier point about how you're raised, right? Mm. Um, Even if Ares wasn't there as a direct influence, and, you know, like I said earlier, DC really goes heavy in crafting characters out of deep trauma, the trauma of being separated from your family, the trauma of being raised in this all-male environment in this, like, pretty shitty place would have a huge impact, right? T'Challa doesn't really understand Killmonger, but, like, your father and one of the elders in your community literally abandoned him in a place filled with anti-Blackness discrimination and inter-community violence. What did you think it was going to be? <laughs> Yeah, and your dad dad killed his brother because his brother thought that Wakanda should open its its borders. Like, this is, you're repeating, oh, I was so sad when he killed Killmonger. I mean, I know, I get it, but I also hated it. I was like, fuck, they're doing exactly what their parents did. But you know, he's coming back. Can't wait for that resuscitation. I was like, yay! I can't wait for Kill, because yeah, I mean, the comics, he like comes back from the dead and I, I guess he comes back either a bit more fanatical or a bit more enlightened but at the end of the day his father may have done the wrong thing by like telling Ulysses where Wakanda was but he had all the best intentions he thought that black people in the diaspora and on the continent outside of Wakanda should be able to protect themselves and I think um when you deal with characters like Nubia and Poison Ivy they come from the same place a lot of the time they want the right things Mm -hmm. and I don't even think they're doing the wrong things to get it they're just doing something that the hero doesn't approve of (laughs) there's always that element too of like flattening things like I think that a lot of times you have villains like Killmonger you know and I think that this extends to Magneto it extends to a lot of villains that are like complicated villains where they kind of a lot of times I think are meant to appease centrists a little bit Mm. because you have this whole idea of like you know Magneto is about mutant rights but then he turns his back on people and like he doesn't have answers to complicated questions and things like that and I'm just like that's not really what it's like if you talk to any, like, civil rights activist, though. Like, they always have an answer, you know? Like, they always have something to come back on. I just think that a lot of times those characters are used to be like, and you see how bonkers activists are, right. you know? <laughs> like, so I think that there's definitely a problematic aspect to that and, like, the way that a lot of these villains are portrayed because, like, they always cross those lines that you can't come back from. And it's like, well, where's the one that doesn't? Like, that happens in real life where we have people who are activists who don't cross these terrible moral lines and they still are dismissed and treated badly by society. So I don't think that these images really necessarily help that situation. Like, I think that that's kind of a maybe a subtle way of telling people, eh, you know, activists are a little bit rowdy, et cetera, Totally, et totally. And who, who ends up paying for their crimes? 
these activists, not the billionaires, not the people who are destroying the world. It's these individuals. That's such a great point, Sarah. I think that's so frustrating. And I think it so perfectly replicates our society, right? Like if you have money, there's literally nothing that's illegal for you. You can be Harvey Weinstein and walking around enjoying your life. A literal serial predator. You can be Bruce Wayne. Like, Bruce Wayne. Oh, my God. Bruce Wayne causes untold (laughs) amounts of infrastructural damage. He's responsible for destroying countless people's property and thereby raising taxes on an already poor and struggling community. He's responsible for putting the people of Gotham through untold trauma even if he would just like nut up and be like you know what i need to kill these villains it would be less harmful than letting them survive another day and then just causing more and more damage in this cycle of damage he's addicted to the drama and he gets away Mm -hmm. with it because he's a wealthy white man and we don't see how nonsensical the entire premise is but then you look at magneto who's also a wealthy white man but like wealth is not like a marker of his personality and people don't understand why someone who barely survived one genocide attempt would not be eager to go through genocide one more time. Mm. (laughs) Like, how is it hard to understand that he's tired of being discriminated and persecuted and rounded up and branded? Yeah, exactly. And that that is a repetitive scenario in his life. I make a joke that every time Magneto shows up in like a movie, he's just like, whatever they do, they'd better not kill everybody that I love. <laughs> and then it's like, what happens? Next scene, they kill everybody <laughs> that he loves. And he's like, and I have greater powers than I've ever had before. Uh, yeah, and then it's like, that's what it takes to drive a man to the ends of the earth. And it's just like, Lady he death. could just... He could literally just be an activist and, like, <laughs> this would be a better story. Like, I don't know. Like, all of his points make a lot of sense. But they have to have that person who is making too much sense cross that line, right? Because otherwise we don't have a moral leg to stand on. Otherwise, like, you know, Xavier looks like an ass. And like, yeah, otherwise <laughs> we might come to conclusions like, maybe we shouldn't round people up. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't have registries. Like, these crazy ideas we have. <laughs> The Xavier character is really cool, too, because I think with a lot of Xavier's centrism, there's a lot of uh, cowardice and privilege associated with that. A couple of the movies called out the fact that he can pass as a non-mutant, right? And, like, he has the trappings of wealth, you know, many centuries of uh, generational ancestral wealth. So he's never really going to be privy to any of these things that are going on um, with these other mutants, even when he's exposed himself as a mutant with the Xavier school um, you're still not the mutant that scares people when you walk down the street because you're blue yeah what was so interesting to me about that in like the movie was how he uh, actually fetishizes other mutants whenever he's like oh you've got such a groovy mutation and then like later in the movie he's a little bit low-key disgusted by Raven whenever she's in blue form and I was just like that's so gross and complicated and I don't think you even know what you're putting into this movie right now because now I have to think about this (laughs) forever oh my gosh and just always like think about how that works how like the wealthy like wealthy queer people like I've had wealthy queer people just do weird things you know like I remember being like 18 years old and having this woman who owned her own architect firm who was like 42 really aggressively flirt with me and stuff and it was a control thing like a hundred percent and so like, I think, think about, about like the gay men who've been writing about how leather culture is disgusting and it shows right. how perverted queer people are and everyone's like uh 
what? Like, leather culture is the most consent-driven culture. <laughs> like, what are you yeah. talking about? This is great. But I think it is that respectability bullshit where what people, what so many, and I, I, I think it is white, privileged, queer people have to gain right. is by being aligned with heteronormativity, by being aligned with white supremacy and saying, like, no, 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 we're the good gays. You don't have to be mad at the gays. We're the good gays. You can be and mad that's at those Charles. gays. <laughs> and that's Charles. <laughs> that is Xavier. Xavier character in a nutshell. He's like, we're the good mutants, you guys. We're, we're, we're just like you guys. Like, we're the good mm-hmm. mutants. These other mutants are making us look bad, but that's not me and that's not what I'm about. And I actually love the fact that the movie clearly showcases, like Sarah said, his fetishization and disgust with Raven because... Yeah. As opposed to the Magneto character who tells her, I want to see what you really look like. Because in that brief interaction, it makes it very clear that even though Xavier's known her her entire life, he still doesn't see them as equals. And Magneto's the one who actually truly cares about other mutants and not just looking good to non-mutants. Right. Yeah, 100%. I have a question for the group. Do I ship the movie, the younger ones of Raven and Magneto, or do I just want to make out with Michael Fassbender? (laughs) My answer to that is that Xavier and Magneto in those movies have uh, just like the longstanding like X situation that I would never want to come in between. Um, <laughs> and I would say too that Mystique just deserves so much better than either of them. So, I, was I like, mean, I, I completely agree. Old. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash realm you've probably heard the name mary queen of scots and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the british monarchy but how much do you know about her life and what she was really like for instance did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. 
Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were. And it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear. And each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. That happened in the movie, right? Where he's just like, you're too young. And then two seconds later, they're in bed and it's like, uh. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that's what I got. I was, like, I'm, I was like, I'm really happy that like he's affirming her, like her blue, blueness. Um, That's <laughs> right. really great. But like, <laughs> sorry, I just realized the joke. That's funny. Um, I'm glad he's doing that. But then I'm like, oh, you're too old, babe. Like, what's, yeah. what's happening? Let, and let, uh. Her and um, Beast, Young Beast, they're, 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 those are oh, some age-appropriate kids. Oh, I did, I did kids. like that, actually, a lot. I feel like I've been watching too many vampire shows. I'm like, what, 250-year-olds <laughs> date 16-year-olds? I don't know what you guys are worried about. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are worried it's about. It's like, oh, no, no, that's that's really wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think in some iteration of the comics, like, Raven and Magneto are not that um, age disparate. No. Like, because, um, the and the reason she looks so much younger than him is because her mutation rapidly slows down her age aging like she ages like maybe like an eighth the rate of a person a a non-mutant person correct yes yeah so yeah it's not it's not as inappropriate as say damon and elena (laughs) oh my god damon and elena i'm just Um, now watching the vampire diaries oh my god i'm so excited (laughs) to listen to your podcast (laughs) oh gosh we have so many thoughts I wanted to note um, in the comic that Mystique is another character that is straight-washed really regularly. Uh, She had a long-term girlfriend for a long time that was not made canonical until just this very year, but she had been around for years and years. They raised a child together. (laughs) They raised raised Rogue together, um, and that was like Rogue's childhood, which explains a ton about Rogue. Um, (laughs) Being raised by villains. That'll that'll change you. That are lesbians, and also we're complicated morally and I think that that's that's what makes those characters so interesting too is how complicated they are um a long time ago when we were talking about Nubia I wanted to know that Nubia is also a queer character in comics <laughs> um in Wonder Woman 77 she appeared with a girlfriend so good for oh, her I love it I love and that. we will post in the show notes or in our Twitter, we will post an article that Sarah wrote, which is the history of X-Men's destiny and mystique. It is very much worth reading. And I'll just send it to you, Alex and him, so you can read it too. I'm excited. That's what's up. Yeah. So, okay, we've talked about Poison Ivy. We've talked about Nubia. We wandered into talking about Mystique. Is there more you have to say about Mystique? No, but I guess it's like, since we're already talking about the X-Men, let's talk about the love of my life. I love her so deep. Like I have, I'm like, so excited. Like a deep, a deep, deep abiding love for the one, the only, first of her name, Earth Weather Goddess, Queen of Wakanda, leader of the X Men, Mm. Thief, Taylor, Tinker, Soldier, Spy, Mohawk Haver, (laughs) Woman Lover, Man Lover, Lover, um, Aurora Monroe. Uh, AKA this just Storm. turned into like a 700 hour long podcast. 
list because Storm is my favorite X-Man. Storm is my favorite (laughs) X-Man. She's kind of just the best one. Um, Yeah, holy damn. And how underutilized. So underutilized. Like, I'm not going to – I know, like, there's a lot of beef with, like, Marvel and, like, you know, Disney's evil, which, like, yeah, everybody been knew that. Like, I don't know, (laughs) like – Yes, they're, they've been evil for a really long time. Um, and they're like, no more Marvel movies, girl. But, like, let me tell you something. If I don't get, like, a full-on solo storm movie, like, I am going to write a very strongly worded email <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> and they're going to oh, get they it. deserve it. Like, yeah, they at least once it. a week in their inbox until I see some some change. People I mean, have been advocating for that so long, like even before the movies. Like I we mean, always wanted more Storm. I, like I remember somebody saying that like Storm is to Marvel what Wonder Woman is to DC, and I feel like I think you could argue there about some other like really temple like Marvel captains like Captain Marvel but at the same time like there is some point there to be made like I think she has like one of the highest name recognitions for people like even if you've like never picked up a comic in your whole life like oh yeah you know like who Storm is absolutely she's just one of the pillars of Marvel like I mean we love Captain Marvel but that's recent like Captain Marvel was around for a long time yeah yeah, yeah. it's such a long story but like she's only just now really coming into her power over about the last decade because there was a lot of like questionable writing for a long time so it's like I mean there were moments I don't want to disparage the whole thing but at the same time that just doesn't really compare right to like what Storm had like Storm has an unbelievable arc in the X-Men and at this point we barely see her right like I mean she shows up she does lightning (laughs) like et cetera, et cetera. She uses her powers. She's powerful. You know, we love to see lightning storm. You know, we love to see that. But at the same time, in the early days of X-Men, all the way up to now, there's such a change in Aurora and it's such an organic change. And that's happened so, so seldomly for female characters that over decades, they go from being one way they evolve and transform and become much more powerful and much more like comfortable in their own lives. But you just don't really see that. And that is ultimately what happened to Captain Marvel, but it wasn't so prominent as it is with Storm. There is an episode of the pod where Sarah and I talk about how we first learned about superheroes. And for both of us, it was Storm. We both watched the X-Men animated series as kids. Sarah watched the pilot, which came out like four years before the actual series got picked up. But I, I, at any point in my life, if I want to, I can picture the whole opening sequence and just like all of Storm flying with like that beautiful cape she has. And like that to me was the definition of what a hero was, was Storm. And I think that that has not changed as I've grown, as I've read so many other heroes. I love all kinds of characters. I could obviously nerd out about comics for the rest of my life, and I plan to. But I always come back to Storm. She, to me, is the definition of what a really powerful woman can be. I always thought that, um, and this is, this is going to seem out of left field, but if you've seen TVD and you've listened to our TVD episodes, a lot of the way that Storm is treated in the film franchise kind of reminds me of the way the Bonnie Bennett character is treated on TVD. Like, she is a part of the principal cast, right? She's in all the X-Men movies. And 
She has a great array of powers that save the team and save everybody's life countless times. But then that's what she's reduced to, like a, a character that's both a token character and indispensable all at once. Yeah, yeah. Let's have the magical black woman come in and save us all again because we fucked everything up again because we didn't include her in any of our plans at any point along the way. But now we really need her to clean up our mess. Which is lame because, like, she has, like Sarah said, she has this incredible story in the comic. Like, her story is, like, incredible. Like, she it is, yeah. Is, and, like, even the comics, I think, mess up because, like, she has the potential for magic, but nobody's ever really gone in full in with her goddess powers. I think they're just sort of now getting into that. Ta-Nehisi Coates, in his Black Panther run, he has a big affection for Storm. So he's reintegrated her into the new Black Panther series and he's sort of like he's gone in on it he's like she's like a goddess here we go full stamp we're doing it but um she's incredible she's her mom is a diplomat um not a diplomat but like a diplomat's daughter she's a princess um and her dad is like American from New York from Harlem and he's like a photojournalist and and they move to Cairo and and they die in Cairo and they die and she grew up, she grows up on the streets of Cairo, which like, I mean, just that by the way is like fascinating. Cause like I've been to Cairo and like when you are living in Cairo as a black girl and like a dark skinned black girl at that, that is hard living. Um, cause they do not like darker skinned Africans over there. Um, it's just not something that they do. And uh, so all of that, and then, you know, coming up and growing up and and then becoming leader and, and all the stuff that happens to her. And, like, she has, like, some of the most incredible, like, romances, like Forge. and yes. um, The life-death story is still just, like, oh, my God, I just get goosebumps when I think about right, it. The- because Forge, <laughs> Forge is, like, the weakest character. But he it's, like, he's not with Storm. Like, Storm has this great ability of helping people just they have to be their best selves like when she's around right and I think that that happens with Wolverine it happens with a ton of other characters like a lot of the dudes that she's in romances with like they have to be their best selves with Storm otherwise she's out she's out like it's so good wasn't she married to T'Challa as well yeah but he like dumps her in a really like harsh way she's too good for him regardless so (laughs) (laughs) Um, they've gotten back together like I think recently um, but pretty on and off yeah but like yeah they're they're sort they have like an on and off thing like they got married he dumps her but like they're really cool he, he tries to like sidekick her all of the time and she's like I like am a goddess <laughs> she's like I do things I don't know what, what this is like why are you like this you're a king but I'm like a goddess <laughs> like Again, I don't know what to goddess. tell you <laughs> you kind of have to bring your a game Good God. Um, something that I just, if we're talking about Storm, I always have to bring up this scene that happened. And to me, it's like one of the most definitive things. It happens between her beginning. She has like all of her like rocky beginning times. And this is before she kills Callisto. So it's before she kind of goes through this like change and becomes punk rock and like dates Forge and like <laughs> hardcore rebels. But I love this story where she meets Dr. Doom 
And Doctor Doom and Arcade have this thing going where they're trying to capture the X-Men and they're going to use Storm to do it. But Doom is completely smitten with Storm, right? Like, he is having a lot of problems. He's like, oh, God, she's so beautiful. Well, I have to do the thing. So he tries to capture her. He, he like, puts her in stasis so she can't move. So obviously for the claustrophobia, this is, like, like one of the worst possible things that you could do to somebody, even if they didn't have claustrophobia. Phobia. So she becomes Rogue Storm, and Rogue Storm is just, and this has nothing to do with Rogue, it's just an unfortunate name um, that <laughs> makes it sound like it does, but Rogue Storm is like Storm who's gone wild, right? She has lightning as hair, <laughs> like her hair is lightning, and she's just totally going Dark Phoenix, essentially, right? And then there's this moment where she goes into the sky and she's like, I'm going to kill literally everybody here. And just it goes for it, right? And there's just this moment where everybody looks at her and she thinks about Jean. And she's like, this is how they looked at Jean. And she just remembers how much she loved Jean and like how painful watching her friend go through that was. And that in and of itself is what brings Storm back. And to me, that's like, I always think about that because it's like the amount of love that Aurora has in her heart is more. (laughs) It's like, as much as we see her as like the goddess, this powerful figure, I think that one of the most important things, because we love Storm as a badass, we love to see her come in and kick ass. But the most important thing is, is that Storm cries if somebody steps on a flower. Like Storm has this beautiful connection to the people around her and like the earth around her. And I think that that's like when people write Storm, part of the reason why she is badly written by a lot of people after Claremont is that they just don't understand that there's that dichotomy. She's both of those things. She is an utter badass who will like literally rip a character's heart out. She really did that. But <laughs> but also she like will weep for doing it, you know? Right. I mean, ex- exactly. You're oof, that's so correct. Like they People do, yeah, they do lose that. Like, I don't remember what issue it is, but there's, like, a scene, a panel, and she's, like, watering her plants because she's, like, created, like, a small atmospheric in the room. and In the attic, yeah, yeah. of the Xavier Institute. Because <laughs> <laughs> Storm. And yes. um, I'm going to claim it now. Storm is, like, deep Taurus energy. But, like... It's Um, true. You're not wrong. (laughs) And somebody's talking to her about something, and she gets mad, and she, and the atmospheric, like, uh, thing, it gets out of control, and then she kills the plants, and then she's, like, so sad that she's killed these plants, like, unintentionally. She's just, like, she's very sensitive. She's very sensitive. She's very sweet, and she, she loves people even when people are like real shit to her like um as a mutant and as like a black woman people like really shit on her she still has like this very deep deep love of people deep love of the earth and like a real deep belief in peace and that things can balance and be harmonized and that's that's what's so great about her there's something about just like the way that her and Jean interact that I think is a it's like one of the best friendships in comics and there's so much complexity to it because they kind of mirror each other in a lot of ways that are like very complicated to explain you know it's like they 
it's as much as Jean has that like phoenix, like goes like out of control. Storm is constantly dealing with the that issue. Like she even in her childhood, like Xavier shut Jean down. It's like that same thing of protecting white women, right? Like he's shutting Jean's powers down so that she doesn't, you know, lose it and hurt people and like all of that. And like she doesn't hurt herself and like all of those. But then it's like with Storm, Storm doesn't ever have that. Storm has to work her stuff out. So like she she goes through life always like becoming in control, like always being able to maintain and stuff like that. And she has like the same, I mean, both her and Jean are omega level mutants. Like they both are mutants that are extremely powerful, the most powerful people on the X-Men essentially. So yeah, you just end up with this like very fascinating dichotomy that I think has played out and has been so seldom written about or commented on <laughs> that like it's frustrating. No, and I'm so glad you brought it up because I always I I think about that so much. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I think about all the time. I'm like because I'm like, yeah, Storm is all about control. Like she's a mm-hmm. control freak. Like she's all about control. She's all about maintaining it, which makes sense because of her life, right? Yes. Um, about having to be in control, making sure that her powers are in check. Uh, and probably also she just has to by necessity because she is in the body of, she's not just a mutant, she is a black woman as well, right? So she can't mm-hmm. just like, and that's something I guess I think about is like, she doesn't have the lug, I, and I don't want to say luxury, but she doesn't sort of have what Jean has, like where if Jean spins out of control, like every white man mutant on this planet is going to go to like help Jean out. <laughs> like right. she just kind of has herself and, and like, yeah. And I love their friendship and I love her friendship with, um, Yukio? Yes. Yeah, yeah we, we, we mad those, ship Storm and Those Yukio. two are just girlfriends, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that. Because <laughs> I remember being like, because I remember like they're describing it. They're like, they're friends. I'm like, but are they? <laughs> are they friends in the hot tub together? <laughs> like, are they friends when they're like sharing a bed, bed. too? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it like or pals. <laughs> or or is like you know Yukio like tearfully calling Storm and like the middle like be like don't marry him? I don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> like, what is like what does he have that I don't have? She's just like, being a good friend, Alex. Just being a good <laughs> friend to her. <laughs> <laughs> they're bosom like, buddies they share everything women's yeah. friendships are just so emotional like that <laughs> and sometimes they involve touching each other naked well, I don't what? know that just seems very know. normal <laughs> oh, I mean bye. as as Diana if the mascara would say you know men are necessary for reproduction but when it comes to pleasure <laughs> um right so we know the truth. Uh, so yeah, I love her, and I there's just so much there's so much ripe for it. In fact, I remember thinking that like you know I went and I saw uh, end not End Game, probably End Game. I don't know. They're, those all run together now. Um, but <laughs> first they did it because you know Loki mind control her mind controlled her. But like whatever, I always think that's a cop out. I hate the mind control thing, particularly when it comes to women characters. But they did have that, like, she can, like, pick up the hammer, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, because, like, duh, like... Yeah, uh, Storm's the one. And she oh no, pick it the up. strongest character whose powers are not measurable. Uh, I don't know if she could do that. Do that. Um, but I, I thought they were like hinting that Storm was gonna like come in because they like had Stormbreaker, and I was like, I see what you're doing, kids. You can't <laughs> fool me. And then obviously, like an Endgame, like the big final like <gasps> turn was like that. Cap picks up the hammer. 
which right. we knew he could. But I was like, oh, I wonder if they're opening that like for the door for like when Storm gets her eventual movie, like she'll be able to like whip Major out of out of Thor's hand. That would be cool. I would live yes. for that. <laughs> I would, it, that yeah. would be live. She's like, oh, you can do lightning tricks. Hi, okay. I'm Storm. And that's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> that's, that's embarrassing. What I love um, <laughs> when she shows up with, <laughs> when she shows up with the hammer in comics, and she has her like full mohawk going, and she's wearing like a giant cape. To me, that is literally one of the most metal things I have ever seen in my life. Like, oh my god, Storm! Right, right. So yes, I was like, oh, like no, same, same. It was, it was, <laughs> it was a moment for me. Um, but she's cool. There's so much to pull from. And even in the new run, she's been sort of reintegrated into Black Panther most recently. Mm-hmm. There's even so much from that that can be pulled from to make her solo movie. I just, I don't know how they're, because I know they are planning to like reintegrate X-Men into the larger universe somehow. Um, right. I don't wish the Captain Marvel curse on her movie and that like I felt, I felt part of the reason my Captain Marvel suffered was that, um, well, first of all, it wasn't Monica Rambeau, first yeah. up. But um, yeah. no, just joking. Uh, no, no, I mean, you're, I, <laughs> we're not going to disagree with that. Um, <laughs> but that, like, the Captain Marvel movie just had so much it had to do. Yeah, it got so stuck in the work of do, doing the work of the MCU. Right. you didn't get to do the work of, like, tell this story. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. The Storm character, I think her story can actually would probably be the best in sort of integrating those worlds because she's attached to Black Panther, because she's attached to X-Men naturally. She moves between both of those universes. Um, She's all over the the Marvel Universe. Like, she has connections that in a way that a lot of the X-Men don't. Like, the X-Men are about isolating themselves, like, increasingly more so as time goes on. (laughs) And so the fact that, I mean, to me, the only mutants that really had, other than, I guess, like, a few of the new mutants, like Cannonball and Richter were in the Avengers for a while, like, Wolverine was in the Avengers for some reason. But (laughs) uh, Storm and Jean Grey are, like, the two X-Men that actually actively reach out Jean Grey was like roommates with Misty Knight like in the 70s right it's like she knows like all of the peeps and like actually like checks in on them and stuff like that where it's like a lot of the X-Men are just like they don't understand our struggle (laughs) and they just kind of like isolate themselves right so my dream dream if I tell you my hopes and dreams wow like a nerd (laughs) um my dream dream is like Black Panther 2 is whatever it is but then at the end they find out that, like, Namor is, like, coming, right? The threat to wipe out Wakanda. And, like I said, this is just my dream, you guys. Um, That Namor is coming to wipe out Wakanda. And um, T'Challa was like, what are we going to do? And Nakia's like, "I, I have an idea. And then they leave Wakanda and then go to this idyllic utopia. And essentially, they encounter Storm. And I'm then, like, start the, bawling my eyes out any second. Just, I know. Sure. I love this story. And this then, and so, like, the post-credit scene is like, uh, you need to fight a god, then you petition a goddess, and then like uh. closes out, and then like you just see like maybe like the beginnings of storm, and then like that's how you can branch. Chills all uh, up and down my body. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. That's, Where's that's the dream? Alex's contract. Where's your contract? Right. Where's your money? Where's my money? Done. Where's my producer credit? Where's my writing credit? Call me. <laughs> Give the people what they me. want. 
give the people what they want. Seriously. Well, yeah. listeners, Alex's idea is copywritten. Don't steal it. <laughs> please, 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 please don't. Support Bitches on Comics on Patreon. We have several tier levels. One where you get a welcome to the pod mailer, and so does everybody else who uh, subscribes at any level. At the next level, you can get a personally curated comic book reading list and access to two, count them, Sarah. Two. <laughs> Single issue comic reviews a week. Then at the next level, you can get access to special monthly episodes where we we review books, movies, TVs. Honestly, the world is our oyster. We do what we want. And then at the final level, we have this very special episode we do called Intoxicated Comics. Sarah, what's Intoxicated Comics about? All the time of being drunk and telling you about the stories of my youth about Carol the Danvers. of the week is Black Panther World of Wakanda written by Roxanne Gay with consultant Ta-Nehisi Coates artist Aletha E. Martinez color artist Rochelle Rosenberg letterer Joe Sabino You know this comic didn't have to be as good as it is. It really didn't it could have just chilled. It didn't have to go this hard. It goes so hard. Oh my god and I also just want to say Roxanne Gay you're my hero for many reasons, but yeah, I think my top reason might now be how many smooches between Aneka and Io you made in World of Wakanda. Oh my god, there's so many panels. It is legitimately one of the very queerest things I've ever read, and that, I mean, as a comic, and that is amazing. You did that in a Marvel comic. Can you believe it? I, I genuinely actually can't. It is, I know. It is lovely. It is. So um, if you've read the Black Panther comic or if you saw the film, the Dora Milaje are the female protectors of the king. They used to be like wives in waiting kind of who then learned like kick-ass skills and then became protectors. In the film, some of that's like not even addressed for reasons. So in this one, it's about these two different women of the Dora Milaje, the captain, Aneka, and a newer recruit named Ayo, and they fucking hate each other. Oh, but they don't really. Enemies. Two. <gasps> lovers. <gasps> it's just, I can't, I can't even squee enough. It is just so, it is so cute. It's so cute. I love it so much. It is so queer. It is so adorable. It is the best, best, best. I mean, Black Panther is great. I love reading Black Panther. I've been reading that comic since Christopher Priest's incredible run back in the late 90s. That was when I first started reading about Black Panther. And always Black Panther has been a lot of fun. All of the mythology around Black Panther has always been super, super fun. Everything about Wakanda is so interesting and cool cool to read about. And then you have this comic, which is just such a game changer for a comic that's already been consistently so good for about the last 
20 plus years. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great too because we barely see Black Panther. We barely see even Shuri uh, yep. or Ramona, the Queen oh, Mother. Oh, but she's great when she shows oh, up. Oh, yeah. When she shows up, she's cool. Yeah. And it's nice because we're really dealing with the the Dormilaje, really focusing yeah. on them instead of them being sort of a secondary role. And it's so cool to see how they train. It's so cool to learn more about their philosophy and, and how they work and what it means to serve the Black Panther, what it means to serve Wakanda. And it's during this political awakening that is happening among the Dora Milaje and among the people of Wakanda more broadly, right? This is post-Namor flooding Wakanda. This right. is post the Black Order fucking up Wakanda and killing a bunch of people. I At think the- when this starts, it's uh, Shuri is the Black Panther, right? Exactly. At the very beginning of exactly. the story. So it's mm-hmm. that time period. Exactly. And it is just like, shit has been rough in Wakanda, you know, and and people have gotten really screwed. And, you know, Aneka and Ayo are looking at each other and being like, where the hell's T'Challa? And Ayo feels a little bit more comfortable critiquing the king. And Aneka feels very torn. She feels torn about her role as possible wife. She feels torn about her love for Ayo. She feels torn about her, her love for Wakanda. And she ends up, in lots of ways, feeling really guilty for loving Ayo. And, and I think some of that is like some internalized homophobia. And I think that some of that is like really feeling torn between duty to this calling she has and duty to this person she loves. What's yeah, exciting I mean, is, that's a incredibly tough place to be. I mean, among the many, 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 many exciting things in this this comic is the celebration of queerness. Just, it can be complicated. It can be simple. You can have whatever relationship to being queer you have, but, like, it's okay. You know, Io knows exactly who she is, and she's like, don't be ashamed of me. I'm fucking great. <laughs> and I'm like, you yeah. are fucking great. And Aneka deals with that tension, and she she works her way through it. And, you know, I don't, no spoilers, but it's kind of like, if you've read The Black Panther, you know what happens, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the Ta-Nehisi Coates run. And it is, ah, oh, I love it. And I love how feminist it is. And it is feminist in, like, a, fucking intense way like there is a a character who is doing things that are not okay with Adora Milaje and he should not have fucked with them is what I'm gonna say <laughs> he's like I'm gonna be a chieftain and do my own thing and they're like ha 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 you dead so that yeah, was dead. delightful I loved that uh yeah I loved how many strong women were in it and even like one of the sort of antagonists I would say I was gonna say bad guys and I was like yeah she's more like an antagonist is is a woman and her name's Falami and she is also training to be a member of the Dora Milaje and she is like obsessed with power and it's really incredible to see how she has all these opportunities within the community of the Dora Milaje to turn her tide toward good turn her tide toward Loving Wakanda, she takes the interpretation of loving Wakanda in a direction that ends up being, you know, really unhealthy. And she just can't believe certain things about the world that are true. And that Aneka and Io and all the other members of Dormilaje are like, well, why wouldn't we believe women? You know, like, of course we believe women. Why wouldn't we believe women? And yes. that in and of itself is like so refreshing. <laughs> like, oh, great. They just believe women. That's great. But yeah. It, I like when the stakes are not lower because the people who are being hurt are women. So that's not a fair way of putting it, but it's not the global 
massacre kind of stuff that that a lot of the superhero stuff can can go in that direction. This is really intimate. Yeah, way more intimate, way more interpersonal story kind of situation. And and still manages to have those moments of deep conviction. Like my favorite thing about a superhero story is like is like in and it's a terrible example because I know it wasn't a good movie, but in Ultron, the Ultron Avengers movie, I'm like, why am I saying this? Because here we are. When um oh God, and it's Hawkeye. When Hawkeye yeah, gives the Scarlet Witch like her pep talk and you know, it could have been literally anyone else saying literally anything else. But it's a you know, important moment for the character where then she like starts to accept, like, okay, I have a responsibility here and this is my role. And I see a very similar thing happening for Aneka and Io, but they instead of going with the system, they end up going against it. And that's what they see is like this is what's right. And and that's as the Dora Milaje, that's my job. My job is actually not to listen to people who think I'm wrong. It's to protect the people of Wakanda. And I just, like, I'm obsessed. I mean, if you follow us on Instagram, you've noticed there's a lot of uh, panels with Neka and Io because their love is pure, and I will take no haters anytime, never, not going to happen. And there's just so much, the whole subplot is basically them just being so into each other. You can't. You can't help it. It's beautiful. Sleep. It's one of the best comics I've ever read in my life. Absolutely. And and filled with just so much tenderness and also like really cool hair. I really appreciate oh my God. <laughs> all yeah. the different hairstyles that are represented in the comic. And it's just really powerful knowing that like a queer black woman created this. And, and oh, and also I was going to say it's so great too that the art once again just matches this. We have sat here and recorded a few of these, dear listener, and all of them had the best art. And this is another one I was almost going to let it go without mention, but this comic also... 100% has the best art. It's so good. It matches the story 100%. I completely agree. I completely agree. And it, it's clear that so much love and tenderness was poured into this comic. And even though it's it's only, I think it's five issues, so mm-hmm. a super short run, and you can kind of tell there's like a giant chunk of time missing. And you're like, oh, okay, so this is where they were going to tell the rest of this part, but then they had to sort right. of wrap it up, which stinks, but... I think that even acknowledging that, it's such a powerful and important comic. And it's hard to say enough good things about it. <laughs> it's just yeah. so good. Yeah, I'm super excited to see Roxanne Gay hopefully return to comics sometime because I think that, you know, people were late to the party on this book, but it is so, so good. And I, you know, I just want to very selfishly see Roxanne Gay write a lot more comics. I completely agree. I, I I think that uh, Gay has such a facility with script writing. You know, she also writes TV and film, and mm-hmm. so it it really comes through. You can you can tell that, or at least it feels to me that I can tell. Maybe I'm making this up, but I'm gonna say that I can tell that there's like a conversation happening between the writer and and the visual artist, and so they're together. You know, creating this world, and again with like uh, Tanahazi Coates consulting which is pretty freaking dope and like ah oh, two of the most important intellectuals of our time work together on a comic am i yeah should i pinch myself like what yeah so it's really everything that we have said it is 10 times better you know 100 yeah it's one of those things it's just a must-read comic you got to check it out 
So another independent project we have is Flower Girls by Francesca Lynn and Sally Cantorino. Yeah, this one was a find because I've been following Francesca Lynn. Actually, I've been following both of them. I believe both on Instagram and on Twitter for a long time to the point where I don't remember why I initially followed them. I'm assuming because they're cool writers and artists. Uh, yeah. And I had just somehow stumbled across their work. And they're really fun to follow. They both post really fun stuff. I believe that Lynn is now currently putting together the Richmond Comics Festival. Oh, cool. Which seems really cool. It seems like a really kind of small press thing that they're doing. Nice. That just looks, it looks super fun, honestly. I wanted to go this year, but I just didn't. There's no way. But I love what they're doing. But they also did this comic called Flower Girls, which is delightful. So good. And just kind of, it's delightful and depressing at the same time. And kind of also makes me stand back on my own life in a weird way. You see this person who is paralyzed with anxiety and fear of what is next in their life. Because when they were a kid, they were a magical girl, right? So they were a kid who was gifted in some ways, not super specified. We don't go into the backstory very much, but because it's the comic is about this in-between moment that she's having where all of her money from being that, you know, being merchandised and all of that is gone. And she just has no idea what she's going to do next. And it's brilliant. It does this incredible job of communicating nostalgia through the colors yeah. about the past. And there's like lots of soft pinks and lots of soft colors. Mm-hmm. But then the story is so real in like a hyper harsh way. Yeah. Where so the there's this really cool dissonance you get between the storyline and the colors. Yeah. That then actually makes like heightens the whole story. Yeah. Like a whole notch of like, wow, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. It made one of my, uh, it was on my 2018 year's best list, which was limited to only 25, just because it was one of the things that I read that really did blow me away last year. So I loved this book. If you can still catch a copy, I know you can get a digital copy, but yeah, definitely hop on it because I thought that this was great. I'm looking forward to what they're going to write next. I can't wait. Truly beautiful. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B.T.C.H.E.S.O.N. C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Music provided by Earth Control Pill, which you can find at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. 
the Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.